When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Matt Barnett, founder and CEO of Bonjoro. If every customer brings it to users, you're like, right, if we make them love us even more, they'll bring it and we activate them, then they'll bring us five users. How do we exactly. do that, yeah? Like, how do you get the firewall going faster? And that's not product. That tends to be time and, and like relationships and the loyalty part, yeah? Yeah. You know, if you're passive with a great product, that's awesome. But you know, people's chances of inviting others in are much, much lower. Yeah. And when you're a small business, you have to be active. You can't passively expect this to happen. This is Matt. He loves two things, building great products and building a great culture. He started as a designer, then worked as a consultant, did his MBA in 2012, and then co-founded a not-for-profit group called XTech in Sydney in 2013. And then in 2014, he co-founded Verbate, a video insight agency. That's where he stumbled upon a problem to reach overseas customers in a simple but impactful way. They solved the problem internally, but then quickly realized the potential that they had in their hands. Today, he's the founder and CEO of Bonjoro. And Bonjoro is on a mission to create a world free of spamming, a world where we build trust and love amongst customers by sending something meaningful that converts them for life. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Matt to my podcast. We explore the art of spotting when a business idea has potential and when not. Matt then explains the journey of how Bonjourno was born and how he took it from an idea into a business that grows through word of mouth and virality. He shares some of his big lessons learned on how to fill his roadmap with smart investments that create both scale and customer value. And last but not least, he articulates the importance of creating a brand from the start and how that increases your chances of success. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how to push your R&D department to focus on the desired outcome and not the obvious output. Secondly, why you should look at your customer funnel with a loyalty lens on, i.e. which customers can become a super fan, a micro-influencer. Thirdly, sometimes your smallest customers can drive the biggest revenue impact for you, indirectly. And lastly, 
why everyone on your team should feel the customer's pain and how to go about it. Well, hi, Matt. Thank you for making the time available today on your Friday evening, actually, and being the guest on the podcast. No problem, Tan, and good evening from Australia. Great to be here. Exactly. Well, it's a call that I've been looking forward to. I mean, Bonjoro, the company that you lead, is actually a product that I've used in the very, very early days when it was started. And actually made a remarkable impact on me or impression on me. It was one of the first tools that really allowed me to go out and sort of stand out in a different way from how I communicate with people. So when the recommendation came in, or actually, I think it was the reach out from your, uh, from your head of marketing to be a guest on the podcast, it was, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. To get started on, and we go in the deep dive on what your company, Mojoro, is all about. But if you would describe yourself and characterize yourself in three words, what would they be? Creative, entrepreneurial, and probably wild would be the last one. Exactly. Now I understand why you got on LinkedIn the phrase Papa Bear. I like a bit of brand. We like more fun titles. I think we do business because we love doing business and we don't do it for the end results. And it's all about the journey for us and having fun along the way. I like that. Yeah. You're speaking to my heart. That's the way it should be about. And you know, you can see it, it stands out because who else on the on LinkedIn has the title Papa Bear? It really connects to your logo and it, it's a nice talk trigger. So yeah, I mean, to dive into that, first of all, your company is called Bonjoro. Where did it came right. from? So the, the original business started around video messaging. So, and this is used for welcoming customers, thanking customers. So obviously we're looking for connotations with opening doors, thanking hello, bonjour, bonjourno came into play. And then, you know, I guess playing on those words and, you know, as everyone else, you're ultimately looking for a website as well that exists and a word that hasn't been taken yet. So I think if you're starting a company, like I love... Like, I think the best way to do a brand is to take connotations and then make a word. Like, you're more likely to find the domain available. You're more likely to have a recognizable brand. You can play with that. It, it's not an actual word. So it doesn't like, it doesn't connotate too hard and you can come more for over time. And you know, it's like, you know, how we call, you know, the things we clean our floors with Dyson's now. That's become the thing. So I think, you know, make up a word just gives you so much more room to play and build a brand like as you know, the next 10 years go, because who knows, who knows what happens in the future. Completely agree. It all goes back to the storytelling aspect. I think you picked the right word because it indeed brings a perspective up that instantly already goes into the right direction, but it doesn't corner you. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Very good. So yeah, I mean, when you started this business in 2017, what was the problem that you saw that there was screaming for Something different. Yeah. So we didn't go out here and try and build this business. We solved one of our own problems, which happened to snowball. So we run a research agency that uses video as qualitative research tool. So we understood the video space to start with, which helps. And so we have, we work a lot of agencies, FMCG companies under a different brand name, runs out of the UK. And we'll do quality research where we collect video of consumers going around shops using products and then we'll kind of analyze a lot of data for them. But because we sell to large clients, it's very much a sales-driven business, yeah? So although it has software around the back of it, it's essentially an agency model. In the agency model, you need to have sales, you need to have relationships, you need to build that up over time. Now, when we started this, we were based in Australia and all our clients were London, Paris, and New York. That's where the companies are. Time zones, Australia, great place to live. Not great for time zones <laughs> as tonight. So that in mind, I think what we really missed was that ability just to pop in and see 
a client, pitch them. We were very good at this kind of FaceTime stuff, very creative, you know, very good at the ideas. But getting that across in written form, I'm not a writer. Like, honestly, we were failing. We were having leads come in. We were getting back, you know, 12 hours later and then not managing to convert loads. So I was like, look, we're very good in person. Let's just send every single person a video who comes in. Let's just spend the time doing that. Because you only have like, you know, three or four leads a day. We can do that. I would take a boat across Sydney Harbour to get to the office. So I went until I went past the opera house in the morning. We'd scrape in all the data. And we scraped data about those leads that came in. So I'd see, oh, John's the, uh, the head of creative at Budweiser, you know, and we've worked with Stella Artois. So I'd do a video and say, hey, look, we've worked with Stella. Sorry, Sam, John. Obviously, I'm not in America. I'm in Australia. Here's the opera house. Just want to say, awesome to have you get in touch. Love to come and see you. I'm in the States, you know, in three weeks. And then we send that off. And that would be the first piece of communication they would ever get from us. And like the reality is it didn't really matter what I said because I was on a boat. It was very windy. It was six in the morning. I was waking up with the coffee. There were seagulls flying around. And they would reply and they go, look, I don't really know what you said. I think you mentioned that you work with Stella Artois. But more importantly, you took the time to do this. It's hilarious. Absolutely come in. And let's actually get on a Zoom call tomorrow if we can and talk about this. And so like, we just went through like this, we just like tripled or more our close rates overnight. Like the video part is like, so obviously we work with agencies. They love the creative side, which was great. But the most important thing is that we took the time. I think it was so unusual that we took the time to do this, you know, from a remote setting. And then there's stuff that happened. And then inevitably one of those clients at the end of a meeting was like, hey, that video you sent us an email, how do we do that? And we're like, oh, we, we have a product you can use. Give us two weeks. And we came back to Australia went to the pub, like me and my CTO just sat down for like two weeks and, and built this prototype. They used it and then they used it and then they sent it out. And then some of their clients came in and tried to sign up and then we put on Startfield. And you know, we sat on it for about a year, letting things happen before we really started to double down. And like, look, you see an opportunity. We understood the space. We understood the context. We understood sales. We understood the problem. We understood video. We started to put a paywall down. We started to understand the revenue potential with it. And I think it overtook that research agency within, I think, 18 months when we started to really focus down on it. Cool story. Yeah, this is then, yeah, you almost stumble upon it and you're lucky and that's where things take off. And it proves again, you know, like you say it's taking the time, but it's like you stand out above the crowd. Everybody's sending, sending and sending and sending and you get so many different messages and and this just, yeah, it's different. Very interesting. I think every startup probably has five great ideas they've built internally to solve their own problems. I think out of those five ideas, at least one or two of them are probably sellable. They just don't necessarily know that. Or they're, you know, and obviously I'm not saying you don't do that, but you know, like they're focused on other things. But often what you'll see is a startup will start to be like Slack, where they're trying to do what was it, a game, and then they build to me out of the background. And when this start business starts failing, they go, What other assets do we have? Yeah. And some of those are really valuable because you've solved the real problem because it's one that you and your team have. It's yeah. not a bad starting point at all. No, exactly. Yeah. And it's a recommendation to everybody. Just once in a while, just look at what assets do you really have and what value is really hidden in there? Because so often we got fantastic assets and we don't leverage those. Good, strong point. So how does it evolve from there then? Because I mean, I know Bonjoro because I was, this was actually the first product I use in this particular setting, but I also realized that there is so many products coming out or have come out in that time frame as well. What is next in this? What is the future of this that you're working towards? Yeah, so like, like I think we've always said internally, at least, that we're not a video company. I think video is a medium. It's an yeah. amazing medium. The reason it's amazing is because 90% of our communication is not in the words that we use. It's in our mannerisms, in our tone of voice, in our facial expression. 
So this gets us across. Look, it's taken a while. Like video has been coming for 10 years. I think ever since it first went into mobile devices. And it was always on a pedestal before where, you know, it was, it was a realm of acting and film. And then it started to come down into the consumer side. And I think one of the few good things about Corona is it probably drove this, this ability to remote work and, and use video as we're doing here today. That was always coming. And so where we've looked at it, we've gone, look, it comes back to that first point I mentioned, which is what it was always about the time. It was about taking the time with the customers. Now to do that ad hoc is quite hard and you can use tools to do it. But the way that we differentiated initially and that we realized the way that we would do it is we built this as a layer that sat on top of a CRM. So it's basically a workflow-driven messaging tool. So essentially, you plug it into whatever you're using from MailChimp to Intercom to HubSpot to Salesforce. When a customer performs an action or a lead performs an action, the easiest being you have a new lead that signs up. That is connected to Bonjour. We pull all that customer's information. We serve it up to you and notify you and say, hey, Joe signed up from Pepsi. He's the account manager. He's a sales qualified lead. Here's what he's done in the product. We think you should go and send him a video. So you give you all that information. So when you do a video, you can spend 30 seconds. You can look at it and be like, hey, hey, Joe, I saw you did X, Y, and Z. I see you're the account manager at Pepsi. We work with, again, these other companies. I'm your account manager. Love to get on a call and have a chat. And then you send it off. And then you might have four more of those that have signed up in the last hour that you want to do, or your CS manager does, or your team does, and then they get back to work. So the idea is, in order to do the video thing at scale, you have to have the data relevant. You have to be able to do it very quickly and then get it off to them, yeah, to make that impression. And you have to spend a little bit of time again. You know, like 30 seconds is the reality of how long it takes. For the recipient, they're like, wow, you actually researched me, you looked at me, you saw what I did. This is really, really relevant, yeah? So that's the thing that matters. And so, that, so I help, like, I don't think anyone else does this. Most systems you use allow you to do ad hoc sales videos, which are great. As is very much a process driven and it's built for funnels. So we build obviously a lot for SaaS and for e-commerce where they have these funnels coming through. And so beyond like lead conversion, we'll look at like retention plays. We'll look at like demo turn up plays. We'll look at things like driving reviews and loyalty as well. That's where we've gone the last couple of years. Now we're at a stage where for us, the really exciting part is this loyalty piece. So as you do this, the beautiful bit that comes on the side is that you're much more likely to, to generate loyal customers. Yes, you'll help convert them more, but even when they convert, the fact you've taken the time with them, they're like, oh, Matt, that's the guy that got in touch. We had this conversation. You know, like, you have the whole like seven touch points to get a customer. Yeah. This is like doing three or four of them in one go. And then you get the customer and they're already more loyal. And so what I think is really interesting is you look at that journey and you go, and so where, where a lot of businesses fail, we always focus top, top of the funnel on sales, whereas retention is the ultimate ROI. It says like generating yeah. lifetime value. And so if you can create more loyal customers, not only do they stay longer and you increase lifetime value, which is a much better return on your time. If you really create truly loyal customers, which we call super fans, they not only spend more with you, but they'll actually go and tell all their friends and drive you more customers as well. Yes, yeah? so you also get a net new effect. Now we're looking at, is there a process you can do, not just using video and messaging, to create more loyal customers consistently and then to leverage them to drive more customers in. And yep. if you can look at your customer funnel with that loyalty lens on it, where every customer can become a super fan, that's powerful. Let me make a small interruption here. Matt just made an excellent remark about the simple principle that's driving the growth of his business. Orchestrate everything in your business to turn every customer into a fan. That means from what goes on the roadmap, how they create the first contact, the sales process, and the time to value after the initial sale. It's a trade remarkable software company's master. 
In everything they do, they aim to be different, not just better. They create a product that's both valuable and desirable, and then go the extra mile to turn every customer into a fan. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book, The Remarkable Effect. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start within the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. It's so like, like, I look at our experience. So we've had this again, like this is the problem we've had to solve. We had a guy called Pat Flynn sign up years ago. He's pretty famous SMB influencer. Signs up. None of us knew who he was because we're not in space. Welcomed him, came on board, spent like $15. Yada, yada, like, no. And we were nice to him as we were to everyone. One day, like hundreds and hundreds of times to start pouring in and we're like, what's happening? And everyone's like, oh, this guy Pat Flynn's on stage with like 10,000 people talking about you. And we're like, what? <laughs> so, and so then, you know, we start, we get in touch with him. We like buy his kids, like koala bear suits. We sponsor some, some animals for him. Yeah. And now we're like, you know, we're great friends. We do a lot of stuff together today, but we could have missed him so easily. We had no idea who it was yet. And yet he is now a super fan of us. And there's been other people like I'm sure we've missed. And we picked up on yeah. some. So we've had to build processes internally where I'm like, it's not how much he's spending $15. I'm like, that's nothing. If I looked at his life at value, I wouldn't have picked him Yeah. But for all that, like he has given yeah. us tens of thousands of dollars of value and we should have picked that up and we should have had a process in to get him and to show him who we truly were and then thank him and then reward him for that. I look at all of our CRMs. You can maybe build in little bits here and there to try and do it, but there's nothing that really kind of covers that journey in that way. So like, long story short, there's a missing spot in loyalty. And when we say loyalty, I don't mean rewards, cards or discounts. I mean true loyalty across the customer journey. And if you can pull it off, which you should be able to do, you could amplify your existing customer base, become probably one of your biggest growth channels. Fantastic. I mean, a video, uh, video is just one little tiny bit. It's yeah, just medium. it is. It is actually, yeah. I agree with you. It's indeed taking the time, but doing it also in the right moment where it can really matter a lot. I mean, it's the reason why I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, you know, it's to get these type of effects going. Yeah. And this is a way to do it. Fantastic. So, 2017, you started that, solved your own problem, created the product. Things started to, well, you created traction amongst that through customers that actually talk about it. So you actually create sort of a viral effect. What I'm interested in is to see what have you done to kind of to build a product that delivers the biggest possible impact. So as you said, video is a growing element of what we do, but I don't think that the video component in itself is, it was the revolutionary part. What has been a really important decision that you made product strategy-wise to be where you are today? Yeah, so for us, it's all about partners and integrations. That's the piece. So going back to that original piece where because we were a funnel business, I was like, well, we have now have hundreds of clients coming in. How, how do we service those? And how do we pick out the ones to spend time on? Because they're not all equal, like ultimately. Building the system so we can plug into, and now we, build, we plug into maybe like 18 CRMs directly, and then we have Zapier we've used for years, so we go through everything else through that. Like if my customers don't use an integration, they generally don't stay as customers. Like that's how critical it is for us. And when they plug in, we become because they that forget. Layer. Yeah, because again, like ad hoc use, and this is about building habits. Yeah, so like ad hoc usage. Look, it could work. I think things like Loom's a good example where like it's very much focused like for internal usage, but in that space, you do need to create stuff ad hoc on the time, and you get people used to it, and you build a habit there. Yeah. I think with us, when you're doing customer stuff and funnel stuff, building habits, it's still hard, yeah? Because especially you know, when you look at leak version and some things, you just got to keep working through it. 
Excuse me. My daughter is now running around the room. So just if I smile, just ignore me. So I think plugging into the systems was really powerful in terms of the product point of view, but also in terms of partners, right? So this is how we now grow. So we yeah. go and work with Active Campaign and we built it a system into Active Campaign. Yeah, we work with we work with Melchior, we work with all, all these companies, Patreon, like, like Shopify. And those then become channels for growth for us. And we co-partner, we co-market. We build on that. It's great for our customers, but then it also becomes a channel to market. And the challenge there, again, is, you know, we've been looking at this year and we initially went very broad because like all our customers are like, oh, can you plug into this? Can you plug into this? Can you plug into this? But technically, very hard to manage. And so we're looking at now and going, actually, we might we think we're going to focus down on a few key players where most of our customers sit. And rather than go broad, go really, really deep on those and make them extremely valuable for those users. Yeah, that's exactly my next question. Because, I mean, of course, broad, I mean, where does it stop? How do you make those decisions in terms of who do you going to integrate with and who not? Is there a mechanism for that? This is the hard thing, yeah? Like, so, like, this <laughs> two pieces of influence. There's internal strategic outlook and obviously looking at where the world's going and who we might want to work with. And then there's customer feedback, both valuable, you know, in their own ways. Customers, like, we have every CRM in the world probably on our list of, like, of like asks. So, like, so part of it is customer input, which is great. And we listen to that. And obviously, we're driven by number of customers that ask for something. Now, historically, we very much went with that in the early days. Like, okay, listen to the customer all the way. It's not always the best way to grow because sometimes you have to take a leap of faith, especially with larger partners. Like for instance, you know, if you want to go work with Salesforce, you have to get a bunch of Salesforce users before they'll, before they'll really talk to you and listen to you. You can't just offer that unless you happen to know someone there that you know, really likes you, which again can happen. You can get these relationships going, but you need to, sometimes you need to take a leap of faith and strategically go, well, I think Active Campaign will be a winner in this category. And this category is where we want to play and we align on customers. So let's invest in them for six months. Turn around, come to them and say, well, here's a mechanism where you can make money too. And then they're listening. And this is a balance you know, of like inbound data versus strategic decisions. It's hard because you can't have to say no to things. You have to say no to money and yeah. no to customers. Like No one likes doing that. So Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that is super relevant. I mean, is it also possibly driven by your ideal customer profile, you know, what are the industries or what are the use cases where you drive most value and that potentially drives also the type of integration that you really need? Yeah, so obviously, yeah. So we look for our ICPs in the certain integrations that we work with. ICP, again, comes two ways, yeah. We look at like behavior of customers and who stays long, who has a higher lifetime value. I talk about loyalty though. It's interesting. Some doesn't always align, yeah. Like some of our biggest growth sectors are not necessarily the ones who pay the most, but we see the greatest like, like volume versus like individual like dollar number as well. I take that into account. There's also a bias. You might again look at a sector and go, let's take e-commerce. Over the last three years, like e-commerce fundamentally changed. E-commerce and online education both fundamentally yeah. went up. Yeah. So we look at those and we were playing in them. <laughs> and we, yeah, we decided, I mean, look, this worth, is worth investing in early ahead of the curve. Because if we do that, it will pay dividends down the line. And that's worked. Now we haven't always got that right. You have to look at the customers, see where they are, work with those integrations. My wife's coming now. This will be solved. <laughs> Apologies, everyone. When I first started this company, I didn't have children. It was so much easier. Now you try to juggle quite a lot. It gets interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you made an interesting point about volume versus the dollar value. One thing is, that always intrigues me is, you know, we solve a problem, we create a product, product gets traction. And of course, since COVID, of course, this whole video industry has exploded. 
So everybody is coming to join you on that journey because they see something as well. How do you create defensible differentiation? Partnerships help there. Yeah, not always defensible. Like product excellence as well. So product excellence, there is a timeline to catch up. Now, yes, you can fund and, and try and shorten that timeline. But that's, I think the other thing is like deep understanding of the industry and the customers. Like you want to be building ahead by months. Yeah, you want to be building the products you know, for six months in the future. If you're good at what you do and you really understand it, I think that is short-term defensible. I'm not saying it's long-term, but like innovation is key and how you innovate, how you work with customers and how you build product is key. You also need to make some leaps on, you know, again, like what's happening in 12 months time. I think you need some intuition of where it's going. And when we will, it's there, again, we've always said not a video company because I'm like, well, video is just inevitably going to be the thing. And when VR, like, like it's not happen, when VR truly happens, so me and you are now sitting in the room, like having a coffee together, one's call and you're in Spain and I'm here in Australia. When that revolution happens, look, for the early days, it'll be a boon and then everyone will start to use it again. Yeah. yeah. So I think partnerships, an easy one. Product excellence, innovation. Look, funding does help. Speed to market. I think those are probably the ones that we leverage the most. Yeah. Brand is the last one as well, which probably doesn't get mentioned much. Point. I'm a massive fan of brand. I think a lot of young companies don't do a great job here because they think it's something they'll do when they get bigger. And if you, I mean, this is to you, yeah? If you do a brand, if you do a story, that's hard to knock down, you know? Can you give an Why example does... of that? How that really helps you already from day one? Yeah, so all that... 85% of my growth, even to date, after trying everything in the world, is still word of mouth and product-led. Those two blends together, yeah? yeah? And we invest massively in customer success. So we spend a lot of like, average support times, like 24-7 and like 20 minutes, and they have been from day one. As you've grown and grown and grown, we have a lot of fun with what we do. We have a lot of influencers, a lot of partners that like, we work with because we push that forward. Yeah, I always think Coke and Pepsi, like... Pepsi and blind taste tests wins like every single one. And yet Coke is a recognizable brand and people go and yeah. buy Coke. You know, like from a simple like example, that's what a brand could do. You know, and it happens in the online space as well. Yeah, Sorry, completely just, uh, agree. And the power of story, I mean, don't underestimate that. You know, if it's remarkable, if people, if it's yeah, like I said, worth making a remark about if something is memorable and people can repeat it for you in an easy way, yeah, can't outperform. Anything on that, you know, you have to kind of throw really, really big marketing budget against that. In that whole journey that you've been on the last four or five years, what has been the hardest nut to crack? I think this is business. This is not this specific company, but I think building a really a high success and productive team, I think. So, you know, hiring and firing the right people and building those and building the right people in the right spaces. We're quite a lean team. So the funding thing, yes, we, we took some early funding. Like we've generally just, just gone for break even and kind of done a lot of this off our own back and self-funded since then. We have good output for each team member. We're pretty lean. I think that works for us well, but it's, it's not easy to build that team like at all. I think there were other companies who do an even better, an even better job. Like I was listening to Patrick from Profit Wells that did an AMA the other day about how they built their team, but yeah. they've nailed it out of the park. So I think we have a lot to learn, but I think getting your team right and your team changes. This is the thing. Sure. Yeah? You go from three to 10, like massive shift, and you have to try and keep, and you have to try and keep the culture consistent. This is a hard thing. Yeah. And when you have three, you don't, you don't worry about team stuff. When it's 10, you start to worry about it. When you double that against 20, you, like then it becomes like you're saying like, okay, we can make mistakes here. You know, We can hire badly. We can train badly. We can, like there's so many pitfalls. Then again, like every time you double, it just, 
like you hit another tipping point. If you get the right team, you should technically be able to stand back and the business grows itself. You point the ship and it should sail there, you know, win the race. You're still going to point it, but... I completely agree. What is the big lesson learned over the last three years in terms of like what really works for you in bringing the best team together? Yeah, look, you need some structure. <laughs> we start off with like, we're all flat, hierarchy. It's not, I'm like, no, no, that doesn't work as you grow. Like, so you need to, I think... We are relatively flat, but we have to get, we have to have structure because you start to hire. When you first start, you generally have seniors. This is how you, you generally have people who, who know what they're doing. You're all, at least you're all on the same level and you're going up together. You can't have that fun like consistently. So you have to start to hire down and then to bring team and train them up. Yeah, like, So you see potential because someone's a junior or they're mid. And how do you make them go from being that to being to beating like you? Because all your team should be better than you in, in their perspective areas. I think you need to have good structure and process to enable people to be their best you also need to recognize when although someone's amazing they're not right for your company or they're not going to get to where they need to go doing what they're doing with you and maybe they need to go and do something else i think you should help people on that journey because you want people in your team to be the ones who are gonna where they will succeed as much as you do and if you both align that's awesome yeah and if that's not going to happen like help them on their way to do what they do and they might come back in three years and come back into the company yeah You know, so one of our developers who was like ready for management and we didn't have the position for him. So we've now, and now we've been talking about maybe bringing him in to like run a junior, run like all our junior developers, you know, and the guys like spent a couple of years out in the world, like way more, like got far, far further than we could have taken. I'm like, turns out your skill set now is awesome. Like come back in again. That's probably the key. I think you still have to lead as well though. You're going to have hard times and good times. And I think you need to, Look, understand your leadership style, like what, between five to eight leadership styles. Understand what it is that you primarily rely on. Is that skill set? Is that referent leadership? Is that is that something else? Play to that and then understand maybe how to modify that over time as the company grows. I think read into your leadership style, read into how other leaders with that style behave. Yep. Like do your research, read a lot. Because again, if you just wing it, which is what we all do, if you just kind of go with the flow, Again, you're going to make mistakes and pitfalls. You have to be seen to be driving that ship. Even nice. if you're not doing the work, everyone else is doing the work. He's still going to be standing there. You know. Yeah, that's your role, exactly. Yeah, I like those the recommendations that you gave. And I also particularly like that it's about that you both gain equally a lot from it. You know, the business should, of course, gain from a person, but the person also should be able to kind of go where they want to go. And if you get the friction in between, you know, Not nice, but then people might be better off going somewhere else for a while. Exactly. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Taking the product to market and kind of building that traction that you've experienced, what is a story of getting to your first 100 customers and potentially like 10xing that again? I think, it's hard to think back now. First 100 was pretty quick. I think, I'll be honest, it was so product-led and so word-of-mouth-led that I cannot tell you that we did anything spectacular other than serve their customers very well when they came in. We tried to interview every single one to try and like improve the product. We're like, what's actually happening here? What are you even building? That's 
really what we did. And obviously that research paid off and we made some right moves in the early days. We definitely had like, you know, an early move advantage. We definitely weren't the first ones doing this idea. People have been playing around this space for a long time. So early move advantage, I think we're going for SaaS BDB, which we understood really well. We looked after customers really well. I think back to our first product, it was terrible. <laughs> like I look back now and I'm like, it was awful. But if people paid for that, you knew they paid for something better. And like, yeah, I think fundamentally where it changed us was realizing the power of these micro-influencers that we have, where you would get one person who you've never heard of, who is an influencer in the Dutch business community, you know, and they happen to know everyone and they come on board, you treat them well, you start a conversation. We we ran the affiliate program. We will pay back 30% of our revenues to our affiliates, which is advice given to us by ConvertKit, who also did that really successfully. That's worked really well. I'll be honest, most of our affiliates, or most of our big influencers, the affiliate revenue is like a thank you. It's not why they do it. They do it because the brand aligns and the company aligns, and hopefully we are also the business aligns as well. I think understanding that, then starting to spot those users and then starting to invest time in them and then hiring team to look after them specifically yeah. is where we made a fundamental change. We still do most of our growth through word of mouth and product-led because of the type of company we are. I don't think that will ever become, that will always be our primary But why would you change like, that? You know, because it works. You know, if I mean, every more- user brings two other users, yeah, you cannot advertise against that. Like, it's a flywheel though, yeah? Because again, if every customer brings two users, you're like, right. If we make them love us even more, they'll bring it. And we activate them, then they'll bring us five users. How do we exactly. do that, yeah? Like, how do you get the flywheel going faster? And that's not product. That tends to be time and, and like relationships and the loyalty part, yeah? Yeah. You know, if you're passive with a great product, that's awesome. But, you know, people's chances of inviting others in are much, much lower. Yeah. And when you're a small business, you have to be active. You can't passively expect this to happen. No, that's true. Yeah. And I mean, how do you stay active on that? Also at a scale that you're currently at. You can't treat every lead exactly the same, unfortunately. We still do a video message for every single user who ever comes into our funnel. We spread that across all the team members. We will always do that. It's amazing how no one else in the space does that, which, which always blows me away. I'm like, I'm like, you, surely this is the first thing you should do. But then we double down. We double down on on customers who are like what we call loyalty qualified leads or product qualified leads as well. Yes, yeah? so people who are very active on the product, like obviously getting to grips with it and have large teams will invest in those. People who we think have good capacity to become loyal customers. We don't differentiate between the size of them or the scale of them because we've been surprised too many times. You know, because someone pays a thousand dollars a month, invites no one. Someone pays fifteen dollars a month and invites a hundred people. Like, who's more valuable to us? So we have to break that down, and that's generally how we cement it. But this is all post sign up for us. So they sign up, and then we, you know, we look at the next stage of the funnel, probably like you know over the next week, and then filter down from there. Yeah, good, great. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, first of all, you got a product and you're living up to the message and like the whole value prop because you're, yeah, you're proving again that it works. The other thing when I also realized, of course, that your product does, it inspires people on the other side receiving it. Like, wait, what is this? And You need to get to the aha moment. Yeah. And they need to, if you haven't seen that before, it helps to display the, to show the product off. Yeah? It's a product demo at its yeah. core. Exactly. And we obsess them. Like, hey, mate, that video get people more like you start to get like the product funnel. You just start to get like the whole product-led growth funnel. Like you get pretty into it. If you're a product-led growth company, obsess over it. Like yeah. obsess and obsess and obsess and you'll unlock more and more and more as you go because the original funnel you start with like, could be 10 times better. Well, you inspire another question here. 
And that's typically also by some other CEOs that I've interviewed over the past years that are about indeed kind of obsessed with product-led growth that have incredibly lean organization and really tripling or quadrupling every year again with hiring minimal number of people. What has been, for example, a recent addition or change that you made in this whole product-led journey or experience that made a difference? I think going back to aha moments. So with us, somebody, number one thing for our customer is actually getting a response, like a great response from their leads, yeah? Like initially, yeah. yeah? Over time, it actually becomes more about conversion metrics. And so they, and they'll compare conversion metrics to other ones, yeah? But that, that takes time to build up, yeah? So that doesn't come in the first week. First week is they need to get an amazing response. So we look into how recipients treat the messages when they receive them. And so we look into that and we go, well, what can we change on the UI or the UI UX that can inspire more people to, to send a response? So, you know, so recently we were looking at like, like we'll be looking at like other ways again this week, but we changed the way the message field displays on mobile, on mobile, which is where most of our messages watched. And I think we like, we lifted our response rate by 7% with like one like week long experiments. I'm like, it's a great, it's a great most experiments you do don't, don't work. Most things we do have like incremental or like nothing. 7% is massive. Yeah. For like, for like yeah. one test off the back of that. Now, me and my product team were looking at the next two weeks going, well, well if, we, if we did that, we missed that. What else have we missed? You yeah. know, like, because if, if we could double the response rates, that would filter down, like, potentially you could almost double your conversions. I mean, like, it doesn't quite work that way, but that's how big of an impact it is because we know that that's the moment that converts. The same as like Facebook knew it was like seven users, whatever, yeah? Everything comes down to that one piece. Now they have to do a number of steps to get there. Yeah. So that's not the first thing we get them to do. We're like, send a video to yourself. Like first little aha moment, connect your CRM, second aha moment, send out five to 10, and we know you'll get response. And that's your final aha moment. So you have to kind of lead the customer for that journey. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it. Okay? And that's the piece. And I'm like, I'm like, we need to obsess about that more because that's what matters. Exactly. Fascinating. Huh? And you keep learning and learning and learning. And then sometimes the smallest thing have the biggest possible impact. Talking about that, I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, which is about the 10 traits that the software companies or the SaaS companies do different that gets, first of all, it gets people to talk about them. And I think we talked about it at length, but it also like that they keep talking about them. What would be one or two things that you believe you just have to nail in order to achieve yeah, that effect that people start talking about you and keep talking about you? Again, I think brand, I think you have to nail brand people to talk about you. I think the few companies that do it, people talk about them. Like, I think ProfitWell done a really good job here. I think MailChimp have done a really good job every time here. Again, like not a lot of companies really nail that when they're younger, potentially when they get older. So like, I do think brand is really important because I think there's less competition there. I think you have more chance of success if you're good at it. Look, yeah, products, like the product's going to be good. It doesn't have to be perfect by a long yeah. way. You know, exactly. it has to solve. The- and you look at, this is why you can have startups because you'll solve the problem in a very core but scrappy way. And it's fine. People get that, yeah. And if you have a good brand that goes with that, everyone's like, well, we're going to back you anyway. You know, the product's missing this, this, and this, but it's good enough when we're with you, yeah? Third part, like, I mean, like, the other thing I'd just say is, like, is the data side. I think you need to understand the data. And this is two facets. So quantitatively, what's happening in your product? What are people doing? How is your funnel behaving? What changes are happening? But also, very importantly, qualitatively. So you need to be talking to customers a lot. Like, never stop. Like talk to your customers every single day if you can. That qualitative feedback and the quality of research, especially when your numbers are small, so you don't have statistically significant 
like variations on your quant stuff. That's how you'll make your decisions. Yeah. So you need to get good at interviewing you or your designers or your product people or your frontline people or your sales people. To get good at interviewing, you need to recall everything back. You need to pass it back to the product team. You need to be able to sort through that and analyze it and decide what you're going to act on and what you're not going to act on. Super important. Quant is actually harder and probably comes later when you have more scale. But qual comes at, and then conversely, people start to be less the cause and get bigger, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Because if you look at the companies who really succeed, like I always say, Atlassian obsesses about like interviewing customers. They have like entire research rooms set up and they always have done. That's how you get to be that successful. So never, ever stop talking to customers. I think another company that does this really well is Zapier or Zapier. In the early days, they would have the whole team rotating on customer support, I think for like, was it like half a week a month or something, including the CTO and the CEO. So I'll jump into support every now and again. I try and get my product team in as well. They don't do that, I think, so much today, but they did in the early days. So the whole team felt the pain of customers. And that's data. And that's data that's coming in. And when everyone hears the same data, when you suggest a decision, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's what we'll do. You know, so obsess about the data, start with qual, build that quant as you get bigger and never stop talking to customers. Nice. Yeah, I mean, my next question is in relation to that, possibly possibly something else comes out, you know, from running your task company in now four or five years, possibly even something before that. I didn't check that out. My fault. What are the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained over time that you would recommend other CEOs, aspiring CEOs to do or not do? Like this covers a little bit of that same ground. Like I think as a CEO, well, there's a stage of the business where you need to be at the coal face, like you need to be at the front line and you need to spend quite a lot of time there. So I think you need to fundamentally understand your customers. Now, and then when you first start a company, you're on the tools and you're doing whatever your profession is, whether you're, you're an engineer or a designer or sales, there does come a point when you need to step back from that and start to focus more on the team and running the team. So your job changes fundamentally as you grow because your team needs you to be something else. So with us, like I'm a designer, I spent today spending on product design. It's a rare thing for me. I love it. I'm like, I'm having Friday. I'm doing some design work. And then I like, I try and solve problems and then give it to my team and they kind of like make it better. Yeah. Cause they're all better than me at what they do. I get to do it every now and again for my own enjoyment. But the reality is that that's not my job anymore. I still do videos to customers and make sure I check in with customers. So I know that I've got a finger on the pulse. I'm not doing it every day though. Yeah. I'm not in there every day. I'm doing it, you know, less regularly because my team needs me to do other pieces, which is, you know, focus down on the strategic decisions, on the big decisions. If we ever do fundraising, that part of it, management, I'll be driving that ship in public. Yeah. So I think your job changes and my job will change again in six months to 12 months as we do another big jump on the team. I'm not 100% sure what it's going to be by that point. Probably more stakeholder management, maybe less. I think it's okay your job changes. I think you have a decision is as your job changes, you keep changing with it the whole way or you hit a point when the job goes in a different direction to what you love and then you potentially step aside as CEO, put a CEO in and go back to VP of engineering or VP of design or move on and start another company if you like the early days. You know, and I know other founders who've done that at different stages of the company. Some earlier, yeah. some later, some the whole way. Yeah, some are builders, some are the people that love the scale. There's always a period where you're in your genius zone. Yeah. I think you need to understand yourself. You know, like this is just a life lesson. Like know thyself, know your limitations, know what you're good at, know what you love. And like, hey, that's fine. Just become Take really good. Out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. 
I love this interview, Matt. Thanks for the openness. Thanks for sharing the story about the growth journey of Bonjuro. You inspired me again to kind of start using it. So count on that. Where can people go to find out more about the company or to say hi to you? Yeah, so company, go to bonjuro.com. Hop on board. You'll hear from one of us. If you want to reach out to me, don't be a stranger. If you go to LinkedIn and type in Papa Bear, there's actually, I think there's actually two of us. I'm the guy in the bear suit. Okay, so like reach out. Like I have a lot of other CEOs that I used as I grew as mentors. And I would always ask anyone any question and everyone will come back to you. So if you need to ask me, I think want to reach out, please do. Always here to help. Thanks. Well, I'm going to follow you on the rest, on the kind of the continuation of the journey. But yeah, thanks for this interview so far. Thanks for having me on. And this ends my conversation with Matt. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Matt Barnett, founder and CEO of Bonjoro. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.